Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Justin Logan, senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. We're in the fourth presidency since 9-11, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the longest war in our history, is underway. And I think it's worth a look back, a kind of retrospective on the global war on terror and what has happened to U.S. foreign policy and to the U.S. position in the world uh, in the years since. Uh, And some of that is reviewing the costs and consequences of U.S. policies. But before we even get there, I want to ask about the day before 9-11, so to speak. What was the outlook from the national security uh, establishment's perspective on where the U.S. was in 2001 and what kinds of threats and problems they were prioritizing? Yeah. So one of the things that I mentioned uh, in, in this article that I've written is that the defense establishment during the 1990s was really sort of casting about for an enemy. Um, they did not like the idea of <laughs> what what some of us thought was the right thing to do, which was we won the Cold War. There weren't any big, scary enemies out there. So maybe America could come home. You know, this was sort of anathema to defense planners for reasons that are probably understandable. Um, and so you had a number of uh, sort of ethnic and other brush fire wars uh, in Central and Eastern Europe um, and elsewhere in the world, in East Africa, for example. And so these were sort of used as justifications for propping up the defense budget, right? There was this business of the coming anarchy, which was a sort of argument that that Robert Kaplan and others made that, um, yes, we had vanquished the Soviet Union and it was uh, disposed with, but there was a great amount of anxiety about little things and little countries and disorder. And John Mueller actually wrote uh, a great article about um, these fears. James Woolsey said that uh, we had slain the great dragon, but fallen into a pit of venomous snakes. And so there was all this imagery of of little things becoming big. Um, but in terms of the actual defense budget, right, what was the Pentagon buying? They were buying high-end weapons platforms uh, to combat a peer competitor. And so during the 1990s, and this had actually begun in the 80s, Um, The Defense Department had really landed on China as the justification for their existence, the next great threat to the United States. And there was really no buy in to a coming anarchy defense budget or a coming anarchy, um, particularly ground force structure. Right. Like the ground forces actually shrank during the 1990s. So during the 1990s and in the advent to 2000 to the terrorist attacks of 2001, um, the defense establishment was looking at China. Um, President Bush, George W. Bush uh, campaigned, of course, on a humbler foreign policy, but on the traditional sort of Republican realpolitik of um, being tough with large countries and not really engaging in nation building. Condoleezza Rice famously said, we don't want the 101st Airborne escorting kids to kindergarten. So there was a really sort of looking down on what they denigrated as foreign policy as social work during the Clinton administration. And they were the sort of grown-ups, the you know guys in three-piece suit, hard, hard-nosed, hard-headed, uh, great power politics people. And then, uh, of course, as we now know, 9-11 happened. Right. So China perhaps was kind of bumped from the front burner in terms of the national debate and the focus of policymakers. But 
still featured in defense procurement even after 9-11. But then what happened to the way we budgeted defense and national security with things like the overseas contingency operations? Budget? Yeah, we basically just kept the China defense budget and stapled onto it a war on terror budget that we called overseas contingency operations. Um, and it's certainly... Uh, defensible that, you know, in the 2003, I guess it was defense budget, that we needed to spend money on things that we hadn't budgeted for, right? Like that was plausible. So it, as so many things do, it started out with a plausible rationalization and then went from plausible to completely insane. Um, so you look at the defense budget from 2001 to the high point of the global war on terror and the overall defense spending, including the base defense budget and the overseas contingency operations account, roughly doubled in real terms. So we continued buying the Fight China stuff while we expanded the ground forces, um, engaged in all of these sort of up armored Humvees, IED defense uh, 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 personnel carriers, et cetera, et cetera, um, which were immensely expensive themselves. So yeah, you wind up with basically the defense budget doubling in about a decade. You were around as a policy analyst at a think tank in these early post 9-11 years. And, you know, in the lead up to the Iraq war, was a terribly weird time in Washington. And uh, I've certainly heard stories from you and, and other colleagues about what it was like. I mean, uh, how crazy was it in those years? Yeah, it's always good to be reminded how old you are. And as every intern class comes through and as my own kids get older, I'm reminded of it. But one of the ways to remember um, was to remember how completely eye-poppingly crazy uh, the defense and foreign policy debate was in Washington. So as a lowly research assistant uh, in the Cato Defense and Foreign Policy Studies Department, I remember one of the first taskings that I had was editing this paper on how to sort of safely duct tape yourself into your home and basic things like not mixing bleach with ammonia, because that, of course, produces its own toxic chemicals and et cetera, et cetera. And I was, you know, a kid, sort of, uh, you know, barely uh, uh, out of undergraduate person. But, I was, you know, I edited it and tried to clean, clean up some of the pros and, you know, raised a few uh, substantive questions. But I was, you know, just thinking, wow, is this are we going to be duct taped? duct taping ourselves inside of our homes. Um, and I remember to his great credit, uh, our colleague Gene Healy sort of said, I, I, don't, I don't know that this is, we want to, I don't know that this is right. I don't know that this, we want to encourage this kind of thinking. Um, but that was very much in bounds, right? We remember the, the sort of anthrax attacks on Capitol Hill, which were a real thing that happened, um, and fears of attacks. I mean, I think it's important for people to point out that the defense, the, the sort of national defense establishment was saying in the immediate days after 9-11 that they expected and believed that there were thousands of Al-Qaeda operatives already inside the United States. So it's not a great leap of logic to go from, we just saw the Twin Towers collapse live on TV, um, and there are thousands more of these people inside our borders at present to think that this was going to be the new normal, right? Like, again, I think you can start with a, a, a reasonable, possibly wrong, but not crazy inference, and then spin it out into something that does become crazy and does become unreasonable. And the, the thing that I think, you know, I tell the kids these days, 
is that, you know, we just lived through the Trump presidency and it had its own sort of surreal quality. But you really did have um, people fighting against the Trump administration, right? There was the press, which was pretty much uniformly opposed to everything that Trump did. There were elements of the federal government bureaucracy that stymied him on some things where I agreed with him, right? Like the the, the Syria withdrawal never happened, right? Because his own uh, National Security Council ran circles around him in the bureaucracy. So the way I tell younger people, people in their 20s, about how bizarre and surreal it was, was it would be as if the Trump administration was doing Trump administration type things. And both Republicans and Democrats in Washington were loudly cheering him on. The press was loudly cheering him on. The federal government was loudly cheering him on. And and that, I think, starts to get at just how weird it was, even in comparison to an administration in the form of the Trump administration that was itself pretty weird. It must have felt like you were the only one that hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, people that work in the defense and foreign policy studies department at the Cato Institute, you know, I often say you didn't come to Washington to make friends. You know, this isn't the best way to become assistant secretary of state. But it really did feel isolated at the time. Um, And I think it's a great testament to Cato that it didn't, uh, it it, it maybe bent, but didn't break to use a sort of uh, architectural metaphor. But there was a really funny um, article in the American Prospect, I think in 2004, where this guy interviewed um, a lot of people in the media to say, why didn't more skeptical views about the Iraq war um, get aired? You know, we had the Scowcroft article in the Wall Street Journal, but, you know, almost monolithically, the press um, amplified the pro-war case, which was coming primarily from the administration, but also from Democrats, and really didn't air uh, the opposition case. And so this journalist who's talking to um, the editor of the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, Paul Jagot, says, well, why didn't you get you know an argument from somebody at the Cato Institute? You know, They opposed this thing. Um, and Jagot, I think very cleverly, and, and it was in a very evocative way, said, I don't know anything about you know the Cato Institute for and policy people is libertarianism a school of thought or four or five people in a phone booth and i think that four or five people in a phone booth was a very accurate characterization of how it felt to be on our side of things um it really did feel you know you'd get out of bed every day and read the newspaper and turn on the television and ask yourself am i insane you know, and so you, I think that's a good thing to have to ask yourself in some sense. I mean, I think the arguments that you make when you're in that infinitesimally small minority undergo a lot of scrutiny, and our arguments underwent a lot of scrutiny, and I think they were the better for it. Um, but of course, arguments that get little or no scrutiny a lot of times aren't very good. And I think that was true at the same time. One of the underappreciated aspects of lead up to the Iraq war, I think, is is the why. Um, you know, that's a, that's a much more complicated and murky question to answer why the invasion happened than I think a lot of people think. And we have a colleague, uh, Trevor Thrall, also a professor at George Mason, who's edited a book, you know, with scholarly contributors from across the board sort of giving their two cents, and there's really no consensus. Um, and you've even pointed out multiple times that uh, there doesn't seem to be any single point at which there was an actual decision made uh, to to go into Iraq. I mean, talk about this, because essentially they, 
they developed a grab bag of justifications, which could be employed at various points in a debate. But a single reason why we really needed to invade Iraq was not really given. No, that's right. I think it was both overdetermined and wrong on every count, right? Like, I, I think it's important to, like, treat the arguments of someone like Paul Wolfowitz fairly, right? Wolfowitz had been at this for a decade, thought that it was wrong to end the Gulf War without deposing the Saddam Hussein, Hussein regime, um, felt very passionately about you know, Saddam Hussein regime's human rights abuses, which were real and grave, um, felt very much that um, a radical transformation of the Middle East would redound to the benefit um, of the United States, Israel, its uh, partners throughout the region. And uh, I think believed, and this is where I think arguably the most criticism is due, um, that there was a dangerous, what, what we called at the time, weapons of mass destruction program in Iraq, which is itself sort of a term of art. And I think this is where the administration's case lied centrally, right? It was about the danger of this regime in possession of weapons of mass destruction, which includes things that actually aren't terribly destructive as compared with conventional munitions to things that are very destructive, such as nuclear weapons. And I think you can see this in retrospect, and even at the time in the Bush administration's case, right? There's a lot of talk about the national intelligence estimate um, on Iraqi WMD, which hadn't even been requested by the time in August 2002, Vice President Cheney, who was giving an address to the veterans of foreign wars, said that there is no doubt that the Hussein regime is developing weapons of mass destruction to use against the United States and its allies. There is no doubt WMD used against the U.S. and its allies. Um, so I think, and this is Asan Bhatt, who is, I think, still a GMU, but wrote an article with the same title that uh, uh, Trevor's co-authored book had, Why Did the United States Invade Iraq?, points out in some detail that the conclusions preceded the analysis, right? Um, and the analysis was made to sort of fit the conclusions. And I think that is an open and shut case at this point in 2021. So I think these people, for the large part, had longstanding views that the Saddam Hussein regime was a problem for the United States, was a problem for the region, was a problem for humanitarian concerns. And so there were all of these overlapping justifications, which all of which we heard at varying times. But for the administration, they all pointed in the same direction. And that was toward regime change uh, in war. And I think that, you know, again, as I as I pointed out, you know, we got out of bed every day and asked ourselves, are we crazy? Um, the administration and the people who were driving policy in the administration very much did not do that. They knew that they weren't crazy. They knew that they had the answers. And the question was just how to get the policy to map on uh, to their ideas. And we had the opportunity to run a social social science experiment in the real world, which normally is very hard to do for all sorts of ethical reasons. Um, but we did it. We, we tested a theory about uh, international politics in Iraq and to a lesser extent in Afghanistan. And I think the findings are pretty clear. Well, to that point, you know, it would be silly to just reiterate the obvious that uh, the war hardly went to the Bush administration's expectations or plans. But 
I mean, here in 2021, how do you assess the overall costs and consequences of Iraq? I mean, they're very big. <laughs> you know, the, at Brown University says that the overall cost um, of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are about six trillion dollars uh, in real terms, which is real money. You know, it's not, uh, uh, you know, th the biggest thing that the government has spent money on. Uh, but it's an awful lot of money. And I think it's important to point out for people who aren't in the wonky weeds of the political science literature on this. Um, one good thing is that um, compared to previous wars, for example, the Vietnam War, which is obviously larger in scale, um, but even at, at, a, at a per troop level, the deaths of U.S. personnel have been lower. The offset, the best explanation for this, in my view, um, is laid out in an argument by Tanisha Fazal who says that essentially battlefield medicine has gotten a lot better. We're a lot better at saving people who would have bled out even 20 or 30 years ago. But particularly over time, she argues that battlefield medicine has gotten a lot better and therefore we're able to save uh, soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailors lives more than we used to be able to. That's just a good thing, right? At the same time, it costs a lot of money to do that. Um, so you've seen the, the the pecuniary costs of these sorts of wars go up, while the casualty costs, at least in terms of deaths, as opposed to dismemberment or, or other types of injuries. Um, so that's driven the, the economic cost up while taking the casualty cost down. Uh, but I think that, you know, the cost has been immense in human terms, right? Um, in economic terms, in terms of what the wars have done uh, to contribute to, you know, a really nasty transformation of the region, uh, to take a little uh, 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 narrow parochial view, it destroyed the Christian community in Iraq, right? It's just devastated. It barely exists anymore. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> it's not to say everything's been bad. You know, I, I, don't, I don't shed any tears for Saddam Hussein, um, but it's been, you know, a big government idea put into play in full technicolor splendor. Uh, and, you know, a lot of us at places like the Cato Institute shouldn't be terribly surprised at the smoldering wreckage uh, the policy has produced. So as steep as the costs and consequences were, it's also true that the American people were pretty much insulated from those costs, right? Yes. I think that's an important thing to point out, right? So it it, it is a an economic insight, if not a libertarian insight, that policies or other goods without apparent costs are likely to be overproduced, to be produced in greater quantity, right? Cost is what tells us we don't need seven cars or two homes or what have you. But if those costs didn't show up, if we didn't perceive those costs, we might buy too much of something. Um, and I think we've bought too much war in the Middle East. Um, you know, voters were insulated from the economic costs. Uh, through the use of debt and deficits, um, further through immensely misleading projections of what uh, the wars were likely to cost. I think it was Larry Lindsay who estimated $50 billion, um, for Iraq, which is, you know, really would have been great. I mean, that would have been a, a steal. Um, and then I think it's also true that the experimental work and the historical political science work that we have on the AVF suggests that the existence of an all-volunteer force where people select into the AVF and subsequently are powerfully socialized, as we want military members to be, um, to suffer and die, to follow orders, to follow their commanders into battle in silence without protest, um, 
insulated the, the, the American polity from the costs of the war in terms of people dying and being killed. And I think all the, you know, the AVF people have lots of arguments to make about why there are other important points to make that the rich and powerful have always found a way to get out from underneath conscription. True. Uh, Drat conscripting someone to go die in a crazy war halfway around the world is about the biggest abuse of government power that you can imagine. Also true. Um, but I think, you know, it's just a, a multifaceted issue where one of the downsides is that um, it does insulate the population from costs. And, you know, that's just, the, you know, the world we live in that, you know, many things have upsides and downsides. And I think that uh, the ABF is is one of them in that sense. The Bush administration's approach was sort of, especially as you think back on it, um, Iraq and Afghanistan are the major theaters and major issues uh, from those years. But it was, it was, the Bush administration's approach was more expansive than that. And you talk about how the Obama and Trump presidencies were kind of the years when this perpetual war stance became normalized and cemented in our politics. Talk about that. A yeah. Bit. I mean, I think it, it, it just sort of locked in. Right. Um, there was a sense that, you know, by 2007, 2008, I think the public is beginning to, to throw up some red flags and to get over the sort of uh, Enya song that was playing after 9-11 for two weeks nonstop on the TV with montages of people jumping out of skyscrapers and things like that. And we're starting to think, maybe we've taken this a little too far. Maybe, maybe, maybe things have gone haywire here. But interestingly, by that point, you know, the drone campaign was really uh, coming into full bloom. Um, we obviously were using uh, UAVs, you know, all the way since 2001. But the technology had come online. Um, they had become cheaper to make. They had become more technologically advanced. Importantly, they had <laughs> become been developed to carry heavier munitions. Um, and so this is a great way that we can use war and hell from above without risking those casualties, um, because the American people, to the extent they paid attention to the war, big attacks on U.S. personnel made the public not like the war. Um, so, but if you're using drones, right, that are that are loitering above a target, even if the drone gets shot down, it's just a drone. So, I think the Obama and Trump campaigns' adoption, particularly of that drone warfare, as just a permanent factor uh, in American foreign policy, um, th I think there was really a lack of accountability, and maybe we'll talk about this later. But there was really a sense, I think, particularly in the Obama administration, which found itself, you know, in a lot of political, uh, taking a lot of political fire on a lot of fronts, not to try to, you know, uh, redo the church committee or something. <laughs> they, you know, were spinning up the Afghanistan war, I think, in a, in a, in a bad, destructive, counterproductive way, I think, to offset uh, their policy of withdrawing from Iraq, uh, which they they did do when they came to office. They had something like 148,000 troops in Iraq. And uh, by the time they left office, they had about 5,000, which had ticked back up, of course, after the emergence of the Islamic State. Um, but they wanted to prove they were tough, I think. Uh, they wanted to, to show that they were willing to get out there and kill some people and and keep some wars going. Um, but, you know, th there was really a failure to account for a lot of this stuff. If you look at, um, you know, James Clapper just 
flagrantly black and white lied to Congress about the surveillance of Americans and just flip on MSNBC and he'll be there talking about, you know, how bad President, President Trump is or, or was or, you know, what have you. And there was just a sense of and there was this phrase that, you know, my my, you know, commie friends on the left always talk about we're going to look forward, not backward. And, you know, I, I, I agree. You kind of have to look backward if you're going to have any sense of accountability. And I think that, you know, when you delegate immense powers to the government uh, or to anybody, right, in the absence of accountability, you're going to get a lot of bad things that happen. And I think that, um, you know, there was a sense among, you know, people in, in and around the Bush administration that the country was really freaked out by 9-11. And I think still to this day in 2021, if you ask the public about what's really important to it in terms of foreign policy, you know, defending against terrorism is way up there. Um, and, they, and they just had the idea that, you know, we can torture some folks and uh, just move on. You know, we can set up a global archipelago of black sites um, and engage in rectal feeding uh, of detainees, um, hold them without any access to counsel, um, hold them without any charges, hold them without um, Geneva Convention protections, uh, and get away with it. And they were right. They got away with it. I've always wondered what it would be like if maybe one day I get the handcuffs and my legal defense is that we should look forward, not backward. I imagine it wouldn't go over well. Despite what you say there about some of the incentives and motivations of the Obama and Trump presidencies, I think it's also true that they seemed inclined to emphasize some of the problems China poses to the United States over the global war on terror. But neither was really able to turn the ship of state away from terrorism in the Middle East and perpetual war that had become dominant by that time. How do you explain this inertia? Well, I think you just did. Um, you know, it, I always, you know, one of my dopey aphorisms is inertia is one of the most underrated forces in politics. People always think, you know, we, we, we start anew each day. And I don't think that's uh, uh, an accurate way of looking at things. So the Obama administration uh, in 2010 and then really in 2011 starts talking about a pivot to Asia, right? So they go over on a, a tour of allies and partners in the region um, Obama says in Australia, the defense budget's going to go down, but not one dollar is going to come at the expense of, you know, our presence in East Asia. Um, and then as they get going with this idea of a pivot to Asia, um, they get whining from American partners in the Middle East that a pivot, of course, means I'm sitting here on a swiveling chair. If I pivot away from the corner of the room, then I'm pivoting toward the door. Um, or, or rather, from their point of view, if you're pivoting towards something, you're pivoting away from us. So they were very unhappy about this term pivot and uh, sensitive to the prerogatives of our great allies in the Middle East. Uh, the Obama administration stopped talking about a pivot to Asia and started talking about a rebalancing to Asia. So I don't know if they focus grouped that or what. But what we did wind up with really was um, a much larger emphasis on the dangers allegedly posed to the United States by the People's Republic of China, um, while still uh, regime changing Libya, while still engaging in important ways in the Syrian civil war that wound up prolonging the war and spending over a billion dollars in a futile effort to stand up a rebel force that could topple the Assad regime. Um, 
still deeply engaged in tuning the dials on Iraqi politics to little effect. And of course, the surge in Afghanistan, which we've now unwound after a decade, after immense expenditures, uh, loss of life and loss of, of, of bureaucratic attention. I mean, I think one of the striking things about this is people will say, you know, no, the Obama administration really did pivot from the Middle East. You're not right. It's too cynical to say that they uh, were still focused on the Middle East. There was an article, I think, in 2015 in The Economist in which an unnamed senior official in the National Security Council in the Obama administration said that roughly 80 percent of the NSC meetings that they had were about the Middle East. That's not a pivot. It's not a rebalancing. So I think the net effect of it was something more like um, justifying the continuation of the then three-decade-long project of spending Defense Department dollars on weapons platforms and approaches to counter China, while at a, at a political level, at a policy level, continuing to do a lot of the lunk-headed things that we have been doing in the Middle East. So it, I, I, the idea of a pivot to Asia sounded good to me at the time for the reason that it sounded bad to Middle East partners at the time. That is to say, the turning away from the Middle East part was the what's the the selling point for me and the demerit for uh, the Saudis and others at the time, but they didn't even do that. Part of being able to appreciate how wrong U.S. policy went post nine eleven is having a sense of where it ought to have been. So, what might an alternative have looked like in terms of our reaction to nine eleven, how we framed the issue in our national security discourse, and so on. So. I don't want to say this, but I will. And that is that I sort of empathize rather um, with the Bush administration. So Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, when 9-11 happens in the immediate days afterward, start looking at uh, a, a campaign in Afghanistan and come to the conclusion that there's not a lot to shoot at in Afghanistan. There's just not that much to do in Afghanistan. You could try to route the Taliban. You can try to kill or disperse al-Qaeda to the extent possible. Um, but they immediately, it, within days, not weeks, start looking at doing Iraq, one, on the basis that they already wanted to do it anyway, and two, on the basis that something more needed to be done, right? It couldn't just be these CIA operatives on horseback chasing around the Taliban uh, and al-Qaeda in, in, in Tora Bora and elsewhere in Afghanistan. So I... In a sense, I empathize with that because if you ask me from a sort of military point of view, from a policy point of view, what would have been a smart, adequate response to the threat posed to the United States by terrorism, even with our assumptions in 2001, 2002 about the scale of the threat, um, the, the military just didn't have a lot to do. And that was counterintuitive to a lot of people, right? Like we, this was an act of war, wasn't it? Right? There was a airplanes used as weapons to kill three thousand Americans on American soil, right? Foreign policy happens in other people's countries, not here. So there was this sense that th th this was an act of war, and by God, if the United States found itself in a war, we were going to fight it and we were going to win. Uh, and there's a great quote from one of the people around the Bush administration at the time that, you know, we were going to respond in a in a more than proportional way. Right. We were <laughs> which suggests, you know, a bigger campaign. I think the problem is when you get into late 2002, 2003, 
It's true. There's just not a lot left to do in Afghanistan. And I think you can relitigate the decisions that were made with the war in Afghanistan in the early days, right? The Tora Bora campaign does not look good in retrospect. Uh, better decisions could have and should have been made. But even if the campaign had been run perfectly, you were going to wind up uh, displacing the Taliban, routing the Al-Qaeda operatives who weren't smart enough to skedaddle early on. And then what? And then you have to go and say... We're engaged in kind of sort of an intelligence and policing operations, and we might have to drone some guys and we might have to, you know, cooperate with horrible governments in Egypt or wherever to try to get intelligence on these folks. But that's kind of it. That's what we're going to do. And so I sympathize with the idea that something more had to happen. Um and, and, you know, I wasn't I don't know if they ran internal polling on on, on what needed to happen. But it, again, this was overdetermined because they wanted to do a bunch of more stuff anyway. So they held this belief that something more needed to happen. And oh, by the way, I have something more that should happen. So I, I, the, the, the sad, unfortunate answer, or maybe not sad, is that we did most of the things that we needed to do, both in a punitive sense, right, to punish to say you can't uh, host a group on your soil that then brings down skyscrapers in New York because, you know, we'll throw you into the lockers or worse. And number two, to try to kill as many of the people who were engaged in, you know, Al Qaeda activities at that time. But there wasn't that much for the military to do, I guess, is the short answer. And that was I mean, if you said that, and I think the libertarian presidential candidate at the Harry Brown or whoever basically said that, right? That it's a police thing. You know, there's not a lot for the military to do. And he was, you know, uh, rendered a non-person for that. I mean, that was like a, a completely crazy thing to say, although it was pretty much right. So, uh, you know, it, it, there were political weirdnesses from the bottom up. I'm just not sure that they were insurmountable uh, with good political leadership, which we didn't have. We talked a little bit about this already, but I want to ask you more about accountability. This is, I mean, we're having a casual conversation, but what we're talking about is, you know, wars of aggression, lots of death uh, and killing and bloodletting and torture and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, what does the lack of accountability tell us about America and its governing institutions and what it sort of might signal for the future? Nothing good, I think, is the short answer. Um, it really is, you know, so th this article that I wrote for the Independent Review opens with the story of why foreign policy in the United States is almost always an elite sport, right? So you have this business of insulation from costs, which we talked about already, debt deficits, all volunteer force, um, and nobody's going to annex Maine or Hawaii anytime soon. So people don't really pay attention to it that much. And I think that, um, you know, one of the effects of these wars is that, you know, as they sort of simmered down before they ended, people stopped paying attention to them as much, right? There was the financial collapse in 2008 and 2009 um, that hurt a lot of people really badly. Um, there was the change of administration. There was the, the inauguration of the first African-American president in U.S. history, which is kind of a big deal. Um, and he had all of his own policy prerogatives. We had a big debate about Obamacare. And so the, the 
in a sense, the wars sort of sucked the oxygen out, out of everything else the Bush administration wanted to do. And the financial collapse in the Obama presidency, coupled with the diminution in violence in Iraq, um, sort of sucked the wind out of attention paid to the wars. And I think a lot of the architects of the wars um, paid no consequences. Um, and I think that is an immensely important, problematic thing going forward. So if I'm right that foreign policy in the United States is an elite sport, and if the elites that produced this wreckage paid no consequences, then how do we go forward? I mean, it, it, the great irony here is that many of the people who signed PNAC letters urging the Clinton administration to attack the Saddam Hussein regime are now very much steeped in the discussion of how to engage in a Cold War with the People's Republic of China, right? So people have just segued seamlessly from war on terror advocates to, you know, uh, Cold War with China advocates and analysts. And I think that's a problem. Now, cards on the table, I, as a dissident, have to believe this, right? <laughs> like, I, I have to believe, you know, if you're, if you're the presidential campaign who's winning, you don't let your, per your candidate debate because you're winning. And so if you're not winning, you want to debate because you might be able to break through uh, with a good debate performance. So I'm always calling for more debate because my side has been losing. I think to, to, to be a little rosier about things, it is definitely a different environment in Washington for those of us who believe in the ideas of sort of realism and restraint. Um, so it may not be a revelation that there are new institutions like the Quincy Institute, defense priorities and others that didn't exist during the war on terror um, that would have jam-packed at the time maybe 20 or 30 additional people into our uh, metaphorical phone booth that would have been a you know hot and sweaty but really welcome uh, development at the time and I think you know there, there is there is money out there there are careers available to people who want to work on foreign policy issues from the point of view of realism and restraint. And that, notwithstanding the Cato Institute, really, um, was not true during the early years of the Cold War. And I think that's just an immensely positive development um, and deserves to be recognized, right? Like if, if you were, you know, 22 or 24 in 2002 or 2003 and wanted to work on foreign policy and didn't work at the Cato Institute, you were going to absorb by osmosis a lot of these zany ideas. Now you could work at any number of university centers, be it at Notre Dame or at um, uh, MIT and Harvard uh, or elsewhere, Tufts, that, you know, develop the careers of people to work on these issues from this point of view. And I think that sort of if my story about elite politics really being the 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 lodestar and the wellspring of American foreign policy. The way to win at elite politics is not, you know, to I mean, you want to do some of this, too, but not to focus on, you know, the Peoria World Affairs Council and persuading people from the bottom up. You need to create a counter elite. And that was something that, I, you know, I found very frustrating early on in my career that, you know, wasn't being done that I wasn't equipped to do. And people are doing it now, and it deserves to be lauded um, and amplified. But in terms of accountability, and it's not that, you know, we wanted to see, you know, anybody in the Hooskout necessarily, but they pay no costs. They have the same jobs. They have the same luxurious sinecures. Uh, they get the same cachet. They get the same hearing and the same op-ed pages. 
uh, across the country. Um, you know, be it John Bolton, who's been, I think, four or five times uh, in the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post this year, um, be it Paul Wolfowitz, who makes regular appearances in the journal, or any number of other people, um, there's really been no demonstration effect that being immensely catastrophically wrong carries any consequences. And I think in any endeavor of life, that is a problem. Uh, for the enterprise in which the principles are engaged. So it, that has been an immensely um, depressing and disheartening thing that I think has been offset by the extent to which there is um, an insurgent force in Washington, um, obviously with the Cato Institute, but also uh, other organizations that didn't exist previously, where there are more people working on these issues, uh, we're able to, to talk about more aspects of more issues. And so I think that's a very heartening time. So in that sense, it's the most electrifying time in my career to be doing this kind of work because the political balance as imbalanced as it still is, uh, is more favorable to our views than it has been uh, in my adult life. So that's definitely true that the debate and the discourse is um, more diverse and allows for uh, the kinds of views we've been talking about in this podcast. But the truth is that a lot of these post 9-11 policies that we're criticizing are not over with. And so the accountability question kind of continues. Talk to us about what the global war on terror looks like now. Uh, we're withdrawing from Afghanistan, but not really deciding to leave Afghanistan alone. Uh, we have active hostilities in a number of countries. I mean, how does it look now? And even though China and maybe Europe are a bigger part of the discussion than they were in the aughts, um, we're still stuck with this legacy of post 9-11 policies. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the extent to which they're obscured from the public even more than they were uh, in the days and weeks and months after September 11th and into the Iraq war, um, they're, they're more obscure, right? You know, you have drone operators in air conditioned shipping containers uh, raining down hell from above on on any given day, half a dozen countries, maybe more. Um, and that is going to have consequences, right? It's going to have consequences on the internal politics of those countries. It's obviously going to have consequences for the people who are killed by the drone strikes, both uh, bad guys and non-bad guys. Um, and it could conceivably have consequences for the United States. I mean, you know, um, the, the, the blowback um, from American foreign policy is a real thing. So, you know, that I think would be the, the catastrophe, the great, uh, uh, tragic outcome of this would be if these insulated from public scrutiny policies bring about some sort of backlash, be it, a, you know, God forbid, a, some sort of terrorist attack against the United States or something, we just start the whole movie over, right? Um, because there's not really much more of a willingness, although there's maybe somewhat more to say, you know, that actions have consequences, right? That there are uh, uh, two sides fighting on uh, in, in, in any war. Um, and it's not to obviously justify what happens, but a lot of times things that we do have consequences that can't be predicted, be it um, the regime change in Libya or our intervention in Syria or et cetera. So um, that's something I worry about is that these non-debated, um, non-visible to the public eye policies 
will create this sort of self-licking ice cream cone phenomenon where um, something happens in reaction to something that we're doing that winds up sucking us back into uh, the sorts of policies that we engaged in before. Um, The one thing that I will say, and this is very much a point that our former colleague Ben Friedman used to like to make, is that um, what you want is China hawks trashing the Middle East mission and vice versa. And the transatlanticists um, teeing off on both ideas. You know, you want this sort of internal debate, and you know, particularly at the Defense Department, right? You want the Navy trashing the idea of ground wars, and the Army uh, saying, you know, wars are won on land, not at sea. And that is starting to happen. And the reason that is starting to happen is that all but the most fantasist. Uh, defense policy analysts know that the top line at the DOD is not going very far, very fast. And if you put a cap on what you're spending, then everybody starts looking sideways at each other to see, hey, I should have his money. I should have her budget. And so that is really starting to happen. And I think you can see it even in the Trump administration. Um, guy I know, Bridge Colby, who was at the Defense Department, um, under Trump and wrote the 2017 NDS, which was very hawkish about China, was very down on Middle East policing the Middle East and said so. Uh, and he's published a number of articles saying, don't freak out that much about Iran's nuclear program. It's not that big of a deal. And that even more than the idea of other think tanks or whatever uh, in D.C., that's a sort of top down validation of those arguments. Right. There are people in power making the argument that, you know, we should just take the JCPOA and leave it the hell alone because a non-nuclear Iran isn't that big of a deal to the United States and the JCPOA gets you a non-nuclear Iran. So you have this sort of, you know, it's not grassroots. It's not, you know, people at the Peoria World Affairs Council, but you have think tankers like us making these arguments. And then you have people in and around power uh, in various administrations making these kinds of arguments. So I think that that sideways crossfire uh, among people who have different uh, uh, idiosyncratic beliefs or, or, or emphases among the various missions that the U.S. Defense Department finds itself in possession of is a very good thing. And I think that as long as the top line defense budget stays, you know, roughly where it, I mean, ideally it would go way down, but, you know, in the in the realm of the possible here, uh, if it doesn't go up by much, then given what's happening with Chinese economic and military growth, if you're serious about not ceding an inch to the PRC, you really need to start vacuuming up money and materiel from elsewhere. And I think you're starting to see that. And so again, we can you know, debate the, the, the prudence of not trying to see, concede an inch to the PRC anywhere. Um, but that internal bureaucratic fight is an immensely salutary development um, for the foreign policy debate and potentially even for some of the missions uh, that we can hopefully start shedding, particularly in the Middle East. From a national interest perspective, the U.S. has really done an incredible amount of self-harm, damage to its own wealth, power, and influence over these years. And I think you've argued that it's really put the United States in a worse position vis-a-vis China these past 20 years. How do you explain that sort of 
self-sabotage on the part of the one government in the world that's supposedly so far and away more capable and enlightened than the rest that it you know, claims the duty of uh, global leadership over the order. Yeah, I think it doesn't look good. Um, I, as a as a unreconstructed, knuckle dragging, structural realist, um, I ascribe this to to the sort of unipolar era, right? So, if you ima- imagine a state in international politics, any state, the U.S. or uh, Georgia or Thailand or whatever, um, it, you can get restraints on your foreign policy from two different places, right? You can get them from the international system, right? The reason Georgia doesn't invade Russia is that it can't do so successfully, right? It's just, it's constrained from doing so by the balance of power between the two countries. Um, or you could get constraints internally. You could get constraints from your politics. You could get constraints that you can't, you don't have a big enough defense budget to do the things you want to do in the world. And during the 1990s and the 2000s in particular, there were very few what 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 IR people call structural constraints, that is to say constraints from the international system, constraints from outside. And there were very few domestic constraints, right? Because in the 1990s, we were just, we, more guns, more butter, you know, um, spend on everything. And then, of course, after 9-11, the idea that you would say, well, we just can't afford it, while you were being told that the cost of it was $50 billion, was just a political non-starter. So I ascribe a lot of the craziness to this absence of either internal or external constraints. Now, if you want to fight with me and to, to, to poke with my own argument, you could say, well, Justin, the Vietnam War was kind of a wild and crazy thing, too. And we were supposedly locked in the middle of this twilight struggle with the Soviet Union for, you know, who gets control over the commanding heights of the globe. And what I would say is we weren't bound by a lot of structural constraints during that period of the Cold War either. Um, there's a great sense, and I think among my tribe in the sort of IR uh, literature to say, you know, it was 1989 or 1991. That was when we went off the rails. That was when we were off to the races. Um, and if you look back, um, there was a lot of crazy stuff that the United States did, including the Vietnam War. And I think that's indicative of the extent to which um, we weren't constrained, right? If, If the Soviet Union had been in Mexico geographically, I think we probably wouldn't have fought the Vietnam War. I think it would have been a totally crazy thing. But we live on this great, big, beautiful island where we have weak, friendly neighbors to the north and south and fish to the east and west. And that leaves you with a lot of room to do a lot of wild and crazy stuff. Um, And so I take the point that it's not just the end of the Cold War, um, that the United States has really felt free to roam for, you know, 50 years. And I think that's basically true. Justin Logan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, John.